The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. It was undeniable, Yudi Simulani was born to play soccer. From an early age, she gravitated to the sport, and by the time she was an adult, was being recognized as one of South Africa's star players. But while Yudi proudly represented her country with her gifted athletic abilities, she eventually decided to dedicate herself to representing a different community, a community in need of a champion, a strong voice against hate crimes in South Africa. A force that would continue, even after her heartbreaking and barbaric murder. Join me now, as we take a look into the inspiring life and gruesome murder of Yudi Similani, a young woman who overcame the circumstances of apartheid South Africa to become a national icon, representing both her country and her true identity. You'll hear how Yudi's life was tragically cut short in a case many activists believe was an instance of a growing and horrifying type of crime. In the early hours of June 7, 2017, friends Sizakale Sigasa and Salome Masoa were out at a local bar in Soweto, a township just outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. As the night wore down and the two women decided to leave, a crowd of people at the bar began heckling them with insults and slurs, calling them tomboys and much worse. Living openly as lesbians, it wasn't uncommon for them to be on the receiving end of this kind of verbal abuse. Under the barrage of homophobic slurs, the women left the bar, hopped in their car and drove away, not realizing they were being followed. Sizakale was well known throughout the area, and her sexual identity was no secret. She'd been the outreach coordinator for an NGO called Positive Women's Network, with a direct hand in helping formulate South Africa's governmental response to the growing HIV-AIDS epidemic. The morning after the incident at the bar, a jogger discovered two bodies in a deserted field, Sizakale and Salome, and the scene was brutal. Both women had been gang-raped, beaten and tortured before their execution-style murders. Salome had been shot once in the back of her head. Sizakale had been shot six times, three times in her head, three in her collarbone. Her feet had been tied together with laces taken from her shoes, her hands bound by her underwear. Beside her body lay several bloody dreadlocks, completely ripped from her head in what had obviously been an extremely violent struggle. The women's bodies were found less than a hundred meters away from Zizakale's car. Besides their cell phones, no other valuables had been stolen, not even the car itself. It was clear from the beginning 
This hadn't been an ordinary robbery or hijacking, which were also extremely common. Rather, Sazakale and Salome were the latest victims of a growing and appalling trend in South Africa. People, especially women, being attacked, raped, and even murdered because of their sexual orientation. Many activists believed they'd been the victims of a vicious homophobic hate crime termed by charity workers in the 2000s as corrective rape. Horrifying attacks perpetrated by men targeting and raping members of a sexual minority to punish them, believing they could cure or correct their sexual orientation. A type of crime increasing throughout South Africa at an alarming rate in recent years. The term corrective rape has since caused controversy with many organizations, preferring terms such as homophobic or transphobic sexual violence, as the word corrective implies the need to fix something that is wrong. In the weeks following the murders, police apprehended four individuals who were later released due to a lack of evidence. A fifth man identified as one of the attackers committed suicide when police showed up to arrest him. Although it was clear this crime was a case of multiple perpetrators, to this day, no further arrests have been made and the case is officially closed. The fact that this case was never solved wasn't a surprise to members of the community. Not only were the victims black, women, and lesbian, placing them squarely at the bottom of the police's priority list, the murders also took place amidst the backdrop of a much larger context. Extremely high levels of violent crime rampant throughout the entire country. In 2000 alone, more than 19,000 homicides were recorded throughout South Africa, a country with a population around 50 million at the time. That's an astounding 37 murders for every 100,000 residents. For comparison, that's 4,000 more total murders and nearly eight times the rate of murder per capita within the United States during the same year. But it wasn't just murder. South Africa always had, and still has, one of the highest rates of rape on the planet. Shockingly, experts estimate around 500,000 women are raped there each year, roughly equating to one rape almost every single minute every day of the year. From that number, only a fraction, around 1 in 10, are ever reported to police, and of these reported cases, only around 8% result in a criminal conviction. In the aftermath of Sazakale's and Salome's murder, a campaign called 777 was launched, a name chosen to commemorate the date the women were murdered, a campaign that became a massive joint effort among 27 different South African community groups targeting the police's lack of investigation into the crime, including refusal to speak with known eyewitnesses. It was also a campaign meant to raise awareness and help end the increasing number of hate crimes against all women in South Africa. One of the activists who joined the campaign was 30-year-old Yudi Similani, a young woman from Gutama, another township on the outskirts of Johannesburg. But Yudi wasn't just any activist. 
Beauty was a bona fide celebrity, a star soccer player who played on the South African national women's team. And if raising awareness was the goal, Yudi was the person you wanted on your team. Like Sazakale, Yudi had been heavily involved with various activist and volunteer organizations for years, fighting for women's rights, as well as combating homophobia and the AIDS crisis. This type of activism was important to Yudi, because like Sazakale, she lived openly as a lesbian. She'd already represented her country, scoring goals and wowing fans across the world. But now she was dedicating herself to representing a different community. A community her country tragically continued to fail time and time again. A community her country had promised to protect. Promises that never materialized in the way they were intended. Throughout the world, Legal scholars regard South Africa's constitution as one of the most progressive constitutions ever written. With the end of apartheid in 1994 came the need for a new founding document worthy of the nation's newfound identity, the Rainbow Nation, a multicultural country promising freedom and equal protection for all its citizens. Formally adopted in 1996, the South African Constitution borrowed best practices from countries around the globe to enshrine robust human rights, including new ideas ahead of their time. The first national constitution in the world expressly prohibiting legal discrimination based on sexual orientation. It was heralded as the new standard bearer for civil rights. In fact, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg publicly suggested that Egypt look to South Africa instead of the United States as a model for its new constitution after the Egyptian Revolution of 2011. In 2006, South Africa became the fifth country after Canada and the first country in Africa to legalize same-sex marriage, eight years before England and nine years before the United States. On paper, South Africa was indeed the rainbow nation. They said the right things, passed the right laws, promised to create a united nation from a diverse collective of multicultural groups within its borders. The reality on the ground, however, was much different, especially so for groups marginalized because of their sexuality. At the time of Sazakale's and Salome's murders, there were 30 known recent murders of black lesbian women, many of whom were also believed to have been victims of the horrific hate crime termed homophobic rape. But in every single one of these cases, the crimes went either completely unsolved or the prosecution failed to secure any convictions. In fact, a grand total of zero perpetrators were ever brought to justice. Crucial documents were lost trials postponed indefinitely, with lawyers and even judges simply not showing up for scheduled hearings. In essence, the laws put in place to protect sexual minorities were laws in name only, promises made, promises broken. It would still take more than a year before the first murderer of a black lesbian woman was successfully prosecuted, brought to justice, and sent to prison a milestone that would come at the ultimate cost. 
the life of one of South Africa's most recognizable activists, Yudi Simeleni. Yudi was born in Quatema on March 11, 1977, a township in many ways that encapsulates the history of South Africa's apartheid-era policies, which officially began in 1948. Although whites were a 20% minority in the country at the time, their National Party apartheid government enshrined itself as the ruling and privileged class. Apartheid, which in Afrikaans translates to apartness, was a draconian system of racial segregation quickly and strictly enforced throughout South Africa. In 1950, a law called the Population Registration Act officially categorized everyone into distinct racial groups. Based on these classifications, the government then designated where members of each race were allowed to live, keeping them segregated from one another. In the coming years, millions of people were forcibly relocated to wherever the apartheid government dictated. In 1951, it was decided that 6,000 black families outside of Johannesburg, in the town of Painesville, were living too closely to a white settlement, prompting Guatama to be purpose-built. The majority of the population, mostly serving as laborers in the nearby gold mines, were all relocated. The following year, the Past Laws Act was enacted, requiring all black citizens from the age of 16 to carry internal passports, called passbooks, showing which areas they were allowed to be. Even though South African troops had helped defeat Hitler in World War II, it took less than a decade for the country to become a fully-fledged, papers-please, regime itself. Throughout the 1950s, anti-apartheid activism, in many ways, mirrored similar efforts in the United States to end the racial segregation in the Jim Crow South. The African National Congress, ANC, organized what they called the Defense Campaign, using tactics of civil disobedience, peaceful demonstrations, and protests where black citizens openly burned their passbooks. One of the leaders of that campaign was a young lawyer named Nelson Mandela. But instead of making concessions, South African's government doubled down on its oppression. In 1956, mixed-race sports teams were completely banned from any level of play. In addition, all visiting national sports teams were told to field white-only lineups whenever they played in South Africa. And so this is how it was for Yudi's mother, Mali, a tall, athletic woman who grew up playing soccer, basketball, and baseball in a totally segregated environment. But neither Mali nor anyone else could have ever predicted the impact sports would have both on her daughter Yudi and her country as a whole. There's no consensus today as to what extent the sporting world would have in the struggle against apartheid, but there's no question it played an important part, if not a crucial one. In 1960, police opened fire on a group of anti-apartheid protesters, killing 69 people and wounding 180 more in what became known as the Sharpville Massacre. The massacre received worldwide attention. FIFA suspended South Africa indefinitely from competing in international soccer, cutting off South Africa from the world's most popular game. 
the International Olympic Committee soon followed suit, barring them from the 1964 Summer Games in Tokyo. As the outside world began ostracizing South Africa, the activism within South Africa took a dramatic turn, with civil disobedience and peaceful protests giving way to armed and violent conflict. In 1961, Nelson Mandela became chairman of the militant wing of the ANC, devising a guerrilla campaign of sabotage against the apartheid government, and for the next year, a steady bombing campaign against government targets was waged. A year later, Mandela was arrested and ultimately sentenced to life imprisonment. As the struggle against apartheid continued from the 1960s into the 70s, a new generation of black South Africans were being raised in a world where aggression and violent conflict against racial oppression was simply the norm. Kotso Similani was just one of the many South Africans living amongst all the turmoil, with his wife Mali in Kwatema, where they raised their two children, Bafana their son, and Yudi their daughter. According to Mali, Yudi developed a fascination with soccer before she could even walk, always crawling over the ball to give it a kick. By the time she was a toddler, it was evident she had no interest in playing with the same toys as the other Kwatama girls. Instead, she played games with the boys and gravitated toward the same toys they did. For her father Kotso, Yudi's love of soccer suited him just fine, and he happily brought her with him on weekends to watch the local teams play matches at the stadium. But Yudi's biggest influence was her big brother Bafana. As the older sibling, Bafana was constantly tasked to keep an eye on his little sister. And so Yudi tagged along with Bafana wherever he went, doing whatever he did and trying to be just like him. And the thing her big brother was most interested in was soccer. Over the years, Bafana played for various local teams, with Yudi tagging along to every single practice, watching, learning, and playing pickup games with the young boys who'd also come to watch. By the time she was five, Yudi, who was left-footed and already demonstrating a unique flair for dribbling and ball control, earned herself a nickname amongst the Kwatama soccer community, Styles. Throughout her childhood, Yudi played soccer at every opportunity, enabling her to maintain some semblance of childhood innocence amidst the social and political strife in her country. But that innocence could only last for so long, because Kwatama itself was a tinderbox of violent unrest. In 1985, when Yudi was just eight years old, that tinderbox exploded. June of that year, eight anti-apartheid fighters were killed when their grenades detonated prematurely. The grenades had been supplied to the guerrilla fighters by a police officer, pretending to be an agent for the ANC. What they didn't realize was that the officer had deliberately given them sabotaged grenades, with their timers reduced to zero causing the grenades to go off the instant the pin was pulled. Later that week, when a crowd of mourners assembled at a local cinema to hold a vigil, police released tear gas into the theater before shooting and killing seven people fleeing the building. An additional three more were killed during the funerals, 
when mourners clashed with police in the days that followed. Throughout the entire country, the level of violence between anti-apartheid fighters, police and the government continued to escalate. Quatema, it seemed, was on the brink of a revolution. As the chaos was unfolding in the township, another kind of revolution was also happening. Starting in a modest brick house with a tin roof, just like all the others in Quatama. This house, however, had a distinct mailbox out front, shaped like a birdhouse. A birdhouse that would serve as the primary inbox for the first mass black LGBTQIA movement in South Africa. Throughout the 80s, a woman named Takazil Kumalo, affectionately known as Matoko, began opening her home as a refuge for LGBTQIA youth in Kwatema. Although Matoko herself was heterosexual, she realized she needed to create a safe space for her nephew when he came out to her as gay. At any given time, up to 30 youth who had been ostracized by society and disowned by their family because of their sexuality were living within the walls of her small four-bedroom home. Matoko was a motherly figure to the growing number of disenfranchised youth, while also a respected and much-loved Shebeen queen, a proprietor of an unlicensed pub she ran out of her home. Her personal popularity within Guatama successfully paved the way for a burgeoning acceptance of sexual diversity within the community. And by the later half of the decade, Quetama had established itself as a haven for the gay subculture in South Africa, a place where homophobia was generally perceived as behind the times. At the same time, things were also beginning to look a bit brighter on the national front. The Pass Laws Act Interracial marriage bans and other staples of the apartheid regime began to be repealed by the government, and it looked like the beginning of the end of one of the most repressive government systems in modern history. Around 1989, Yudi made an announcement to her family. At the age of 12, Yudi came home one day from school and told her parents she was a lesbian followed by the question, do you still love me? Without hesitation, her parents reassured her they did. Even her grandmother showed her nothing but love when Yudi told her she'd never have children because of her sexuality. With nothing but support from her immediate family, Yudi became one of the first out and open lesbian women in Quetama. Sadly for countless other young people, the reaction from their families aren't always as supportive as Yudi's. Dr. Christina Frazzani explains the detrimental psychological impact this can have. Sexuality shapes a person's life at all ages, but during adolescence and young adult development, it really intensifies. Knowing one will be socially ostracized and even worse, rejected by family, can significantly disrupt mental health causing anxiety, low self-esteem, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorders, and even suicidal thoughts. In many cases, individuals will go to great lengths to pass as straight or hide their sexuality, leading to shame, which is such a hurtful emotion. It even affects physical health by causing muscle tension, digestive issues, and raising cortisol levels. 
the nervous system learns to over-respond, causing people to react to even mild threats with fight, flight, or freeze responses, even when it's not necessary. Being dominated and oppressed in this way is so destabilizing that it's no wonder many people aren't open about their sexuality, and those who are have to be so careful. Not long after Yudi confided to her family, was she approached by some local girls, asking her to join their soccer team, and of course Yudi jumped at the chance. The idea of organized women's soccer was still in its infancy in South Africa, and it came amidst a tidal wave of major national milestones that would forever change the course of South Africa. In 1990, the government announced its intention to begin systematically dismantling apartheid, and as a show of good faith, released Nelson Mandela after spending 27 years in prison. In 1991, mixed-race sports were reinstated throughout the country, and the world responded in kind by welcoming South Africa back into the fold of international competitions. Finally, on April 27, 1994, South Africa held its first universal election, allowing citizens of all races to take part. Nelson Mandela's ANC party won in a landslide, making him the first South African president in the post-apartheid era. During these promising years, Yudi worked tirelessly to hone her soccer skills, and it didn't take long for coaches to notice she was a uniquely gifted player. Yudi was soon invited to play for her provincial team touring the country, and by the time she was an adult, Yudi was recognized as one of South Africa's best soccer players. Of course, her biggest fan was her brother Bafana, and he'd be later quoted saying, In sports, she was a diamond, scoring beautiful goals. She was a marvelous person, intelligent, everything. Yudi's success continued when she was selected in 1999 to be part of the South African national women's team. Now Yudi wasn't just playing around the country, she was playing around the world. As a member of the national team, Yudi became a recognizable celebrity, especially in Guatama, where she continued to play for her local squad between international competitions. A platform and status she used to champion LGBTQIA rights within her community. Around 2006, Yudi retired from the national team and began pursuing other goals, starting law school and also beginning training to become South Africa's first female professional soccer referee. In 2008, Yudi received a job offer from a law firm in Pretoria, a big deal on multiple fronts. For one, the job came with the promise of a salary much more generous than she'd ever made playing soccer. The money would also allow Yudi to become her family's breadwinner, providing for her retired father and mother. It was also seen as a victory among Quintama's LGBTQIA community, as it was still extremely rare for someone living openly to be given any proper salaried position. Yudi even made a special trip to Pretoria to show off her new office to her mother. Mally couldn't have been more proud of her daughter, who was accomplishing so much. But it was a job Yudi would never start. April 27, 2008, marked the 14th anniversary of universal suffrage in South Africa. 
a special holiday celebrated throughout the country known as Freedom Day. Yudi spent the evening having a low-key party with some of her friends at home. Although she still lived with her parents, Yudi's room was a detached bungalow, providing her with her own space. When the party got a little too ruckus, Mally asked Yudi to turn down the music so she and Kotso could get some sleep. Sometime around midnight, Yudi and her friends left her bungalow and went to a local pub to continue their evening. That night she was wearing blue jeans, a leather jacket, and a pair of black and white sneakers, or tackies as they're called in South Africa. About an hour and a half after getting to the pub, about 1.30 a.m., Yudi started walking home. That's when the day of celebration soon turned to horror. Suddenly, when Yudi was almost home, just a few hundred meters away, a group of men viciously attacked her, dragging her off to a nearby field where they took turns forcibly raping her. Although the field itself is surrounded by houses, residents didn't dare venture out into it at night, because after dark, it was a well-known location for all manner of gang activity and violent crimes. It's for this reason that although Yudi's screams could be heard by neighbors that night, no one came to help her. They were too frightened to intervene, fearing becoming a victim themselves. As the men took their turns, savagely attacking and raping Yudi, she recognized one of them, a man named Temba Mvubu. Yudi pleaded with him, Temba, you know me, why do you do this? But Temba felt no mercy for her, and just like her screams, her cries fell on deaf ears. Rather than letting Yudi go, the men started stabbing her repeatedly with a knife, on her feet, thighs, face and chest, before fatally stabbing her in the abdomen. The men took what they wanted from Yudi and didn't stop until there was nothing left, leaving her in a drainage ditch, face down in the middle of the field. Her clothes had been removed from her body, some ripped and strewn around the crime scene, while others were stolen by her attackers. Temba took her tackies and wore them the next morning. Because Freedom Day had fallen on a Sunday, the Monday was treated as a public holiday and most South Africans had the day off work. Yudi's brother Bafana had spent the day relaxing and listening to music, but was interrupted by a woman who'd walked over to his home. She told him a rumor was circulating that Yudi had died, believing it must have been a mistake. Bafana assured her that wasn't the case, and she left. Fifteen minutes later, Bafana received a call from his mother's neighbor telling him he needed to come home as soon as possible, but wouldn't tell him why. When he arrived, the neighbor would only tell him that he needed to go to the police station where his mother Mally was waiting for him. Mally had experienced similar interactions as her son, various neighbors getting in touch with her, trying to get her to go to the police station without telling her the reason why. It seemed no one wanted to break the news to her or didn't feel it was their place. Not knowing what to expect, Bafana took a taxi to the police station, passing the very field his sister's body lay. As he passed by, he noticed a crowd of people that had gathered, but thought nothing of it at the time. When he arrived at the station, his mother told him that something bad had happened. Your sister has been murdered. 
When police brought Bafana and Mally to the field, Mally stayed back while Bafana pushed through the large crowd to see for himself what had happened to his sister. When he got to her body, he saw blood and Yudi's torn clothing surrounding her. Overcome with emotion, Bafana took a handful of Yudi's blood and swallowed it, telling the crowd, This is my blood. I will not leave it here. I'm taking it with me, inside of me. Carrying Yudi's bloody clothing, Bafana walked back to his mother and confirmed her worst fear. The body in the field was Yudi. Hearing the words, Mali fainted. When Mali and Kotso later went to view Yudi's body at the mortuary, they were told they weren't allowed to see her. When they asked why, they were told, the mother will go mad or die if they see what we see, the way they stabbed her, those holes. Years later, Mally would reflect on being denied to see her daughter's body with thankfulness in her heart, saying, I did not see what my child looked like after they murdered her, and somehow I thank God for that, because I would still be holding on to that gruesome picture. Although I see and hear Yudi, the picture in my mind is that of her smiling, and I cherish that. More than 1,000 people from Yudi's community and around the country came to her funeral to pay their respects. According to Mali, it was the largest funeral the community had ever seen. The following day was supposed to have been Yudi's first day at her new job. But while the outpouring of love for Yudi was overwhelming and the impact she'd made on her community through sports and activism was obvious, her rape and murder sent a chilling message throughout the township. It didn't matter how famous, respected, loved, or admired a person was. If you were a black lesbian woman, you could be next. Within 24 hours of Yudi's attack, police arrested five men and charged them with her rape and murder. A level of efficiency practically unheard of in most of South Africa. One of the men was Seppo, shockingly one of the friends who'd gone over to Yudi's bungalow before heading to the pub the night she was murdered. Another man was 24-year-old Temba Mvubu, the man Yudi had recognized just before she was stabbed. Police had remained very tight-lipped about how exactly they identified the men so quickly, but various items that belonged to Yudi, her belt, watch, shoes, and cell phone, were found among the accused possessions. The most damning evidence, however, was that Yudi's blood had been found on Temba's pants. But because they lacked any real evidence against Seppo, the charges against him were dropped. Initially, the remaining four men denied they had anything to do with Yudi's attack until the first day of their trial, when there was a surprising twist. 23-year-old Tato Mafiti shocked the courtroom by changing his plea to guilty, agreeing to testify against the others. For the crimes of robbery, rape, and murder, Tato was given a sentence of 31 years imprisonment. According to official statements given to the court, Tato claimed he and the other three men saw Yudi walking home that night and decided to rob her, not knowing who she was. But when they realized she didn't have any money, one of them suggested raping her, and the others followed suit. That was the point when Yudi had recognized Temba, and because they knew she'd be able to identify him, they decided they needed to silence her. Temba then claimed he handed Tato a knife and he began to stab her. 
the question of whether or not Yudi's sexuality was a motivating factor in her murder was never raised by the prosecutor, and at sentencing, the judge declared that Yudi's sexual orientation had no significance in her murder. His remarks caused outrage among Yudi's family, community, and activists throughout the country. To them, the idea that the murderers wouldn't have recognized Yudi was preposterous. She was one of the most famous and recognizable people in all of Gautama, and had been for more than a decade. Everyone knew Yudi, and everyone knew she was a proud lesbian and a champion for LGBTQIA rights. Beyond that, Yudi knew one of her attackers personally. To them it was obvious, Yudi had been targeted and attacked because of who she was and what she represented, and many believed she was the latest victim of homophobic rape. Homophobic rape is a way that men try to gain back the control of the female bodies that they feel like they've lost. More masculine presenting women and those who identify as non-binary or transgender pose a particular threat to heterosexual expectations. Survivors of homophobic rape experience extreme anxiety, as well as mistrust of their bodies and difficulty feeling safe in romantic and sexual relationships. As you can imagine, individuals are often berated with verbal abuse during the rape, reiterating that the way they look and who they love is unacceptable and must be changed, which leaves them with a sense of inadequacy and rejection. Homophobic rape is often perpetrated by a group rather than an individual, which further causes the survivor to feel defeated and hopeless when faced with violence or rejection again because they were completely overtaken. There's a direct correlation between homophobia levels in a culture and the mental health of those who are coming out. Yudi Similani must have faced many of these challenges when she decided to live openly in her community and even act as a role model. The consequences she paid for being so brave and trying to move society forward ended up being a devastating and heartbreaking setback. Six months after the first trial began, the trial of Temba and the other two began. It was all set to be a slam dunk for the prosecution, who were relying heavily on Tato's testimony against the others. But on the witness stand, Tato surprised the court once again, this time by recanting his earlier story entirely. He now claimed he'd been lying before, and stated that the others had absolutely nothing to do with Yudi's rape and murder. In fact, he insisted the others had warned him not to. How is this possible then, for Temba's pants to be covered in Yudi's blood? For this, Tato had no answer, but he swore he was telling the truth. But nobody believed him. It was suggested in court he was somehow bribed or perhaps his life was threatened in some way. Nevertheless, without Tato's testimony, the prosecution was left with very little. In the end, Temba was convicted of Yudi's murder and was given a life sentence. Yudi's blood on his pants linked him directly to the crime and couldn't be ignored. As for the other two men, without Tato's testimony, they were both acquitted due to a lack of evidence. As Temba was being led out of the courtroom, he laughed and told the reporter, I'm not sorry at all. In one sense, the trial was a victory for South Africa's LGBTQIA community. Yudi was the first black lesbian woman whose murderers had been prosecuted, even if, as many believe, 
two or three of the men responsible ultimately got away with it. But this was a promising sign for things to come. Or was Yudi's case just an exception to the rule? Freedom Day in the new South Africa arrived in 1994 with enormous hopes and promises of ending discrimination in all of its forms. The first constitution to guarantee rights to all sexual orientations and a global pioneer in the legalization of same-sex marriage. Everyone, regardless of their sexuality, was promised to be accepted as a member of the Rainbow Nation. But this is a promise the LGBTQIA community is still desperately waiting on to come true. In the years since Yudi's murder, the number of homophobic hate crimes, rapes and murders in South Africa has only continued to rise. Despite a slew of laws, regulations, task forces, and governmental initiatives, many in direct response to Yudi's murder, there's been very little, if any, direct positive impact. Today, 87% of black South African lesbians report living in fear of sexual assault, and there's an estimated 500 cases of homophobic rape each year, most of which continue to go unreported to police. The prevalence of rape in South Africa continues to be an extremely statistical outlier, and social scientists are doing their best to understand the contributing underlying conditions. And what they found is there isn't just one simple explanation, but rather a multivariable set of complex dynamics. Colonization, poverty, fundamentalist Christianity, widespread xenophobia, racism, apartheid, the AIDS epidemic, patriarchy and misogyny have all been suggested as contributing factors toward the extreme levels of violence against women and the LGBTQIA community. In the fight to reduce rape and end homophobic hate crimes, there is no easy answer, no quick fixes, and no laws that can magically cure the enduring cycle of sexual violence within South Africa in one fell swoop. Sexual oppression exists everywhere, even in countries with laws that are supposed to protect gender identity and sexual orientation. In fact, as you've heard, South Africa has some of the most progressive constitutional protections of human rights for LGBTQI people, and yet rates of gender violence there are among the highest in the world. Freely expressing gender identity or sexual orientation comes at other risks, like being mimicked, sexually harassed, intimidated, raped, or even murdered. Youth and young adults in the LGBTQI community experience high levels of trauma, which can lead to being susceptible to further trauma in the future. If a young person is bullied for coming out, they're more likely to then struggle with low self-esteem, choose unhealthy relationships, or even have self-destructive choices like drug use. The alternative, living openly in homophobic communities, is a necessary step. However, it's not always the safest option. Coming out can be very dangerous and leave individuals open to violence. Yudi's mother, Mally, was a devout Methodist, and in the years following her daughter's murder, she dedicated herself to changing Guatemala's faith-based community's attitudes towards sexual minorities. She wanted the church to become part of the solution instead of, as many saw it, part of the problem 
and it became her life's mission. Over the years, Mally became a mother figure to countless black lesbian youth rejected by their families, most of them even referring to Mally as mum, a term of endearment and a sign of respect. Until her death in 2019, Mally continued to carry the same compassionate understanding torch that Matoko had ignited all those years ago in her home in Quetema. While many continue waiting for the South African government to find a solution to its crisis of extreme sexual violence, it's people like Matoko, Yudi, and Mali who have proven that the real change begins with honest compassion and understanding at the level of the individual. It's this kind of compassion that can change communities, countries, and with enough of them, the world. Today, the birdhouse mailbox that so many years ago stood outside Matoko's home, serving as a key communication point for the LGBTQIA movement in South Africa, now sits on display at the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg, reminding us of the struggles, discrimination, and violence the community has faced, now serving as a beacon of hope for what can be achieved and changed in the future. As for Yudi Similani, her name and all she achieved and stood for will not be long forgotten from the nation she so proudly represented, least of all by the community she lived in, where a bridge has been built over the stream next to the field where her body was found. The bridge features an imprint of Yudi's face, a reminder of the freedom, dignity and equality deserved by all. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, True Crime South Africa. South Africa, a country whose spectacular beauty and dynamic people are known the world over. But there's another side to our country, and one that is rarely discussed in the detail it deserves. Join me, Nicole Engelbrecht, on True Crime South Africa, South Africa's first victim-focused true crime podcast, as we go beyond the headlines, focus on the victims, and explore some of South Africa's most heinous violent crimes. True Crime South Africa is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.